The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to discusses the following works. The Crown, Room 222, Welcome Back, Cotter, The White Knight, The Paper Chase, Alias Grace, Lovecraft Country, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, Perry Mason, Afterlife, and Hollywood. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore, I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, so here we are at the start of season six. This is our 41st episode, and um, we've managed to time this in such a way that this season starts up right as we undergo, um, which we've been preparing for, major revisions to the way we do our jobs, right? So this is the thing on our minds right now, education. Um, changes in education due to COVID-19, the pandemic. We've got technological changes as well as, you know, a a variety of other things um, under consideration. Our son's going back to school. Um, We've got concerns. In a hybrid format. In a hybrid format. Yeah, it's a great format. Concerns about that. Um, And so um, we're looking at pop culture, you know, right now, um, in a broader sense than we normally do. I, I think that the sort of dominant feature of pop culture these days is what's going back to school like for most people. Um, so we'll be talking about that a little bit. Um, I want to just start off with a little story. I woke up this morning to a nice email um, on the first day of school for us and certainly most um, um, universities, or not most, but a you know, great number of them, um, saying Zoom is down, right, <laughs> nationwide. So people worked all summer to get their classes up and ready to go. And in the various formats, you know, the um, hybrid formats and the face-to-face formats and the synchronous and the asynchronous and the virtual hybrid formats. And those are just the names that our school or my school, yours might be different. Um, and the technology wasn't exactly available. Although there were backup plans, right? There was um, Google Meets was available and there were different ways to access Zoom. So it just involved some, some shuffling. But um, we're, we're going to be in for a, a bumpy ride, I think. I think we'll get through it. I, th- I think that, I, and I think that the educational experience will be a good one for the students. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's part of what we want to talk about today. Um, so let's, should we dive in? Sure. So... Uh, The Trump administration a few days ago issued some guidance from the Department of Homeland Security designating teachers as essential workers. This means a couple things, some good and some not so good, right? So one one of those, uh, so this, this puts teachers in a similar category as doctors and police officers. And what that means is they can return to work even after having knowingly been exposed to a case of COVID, uh, so long as they're not experiencing symptoms, so so long as they're asymptomatic. 
Right. So it, it's a nice thing to say, oh, well, you're essential. Um, but the specifics of it are very important, right? Yeah. You, I don't know that it's a nice thing to say that someone's essential if you continue to like take advantage of them. Yeah, it's, it just it just it sounds nice, but yeah. there's this this yeah. other side of it, which means you have to go to work. I, I and and actually, it's not a legal requirement. Um, so it's it's guidance. It's not a mandate. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So it's just possible that they can go back to work. And, but, you know, that gets coercive uh, right. and, and it could be coercive in various different school districts from one place to another. Um, so I, the, the good feature of it, at least Vice President Pence was saying that um, what this allows for is for uh, the essential workers get priority status when it comes to getting personal protective equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one good feature of it. But and I can th- attest to that just quickly. Um, the, my school gave me a mask, so <laughs> I'm golden. Yeah. I think they're when they talk about priority status for personal protective equipment, they probably mean some more like advanced, mm-hmm. um, like higher heavy duty masks, like or, a better mask, yeah. um, two masks. <laughs> uh, so I mean, this raises philosophical questions about what it what it means to be essential, right? Uh, so here's here's two understandings of what it would mean to be essential. One, essential is required, right? That uh, we couldn't continue on without without the services of this person. So right. a you, sine qua non, as they say, right? So necessary condition, without which not. So um, food, right? We, we need food. We don't necessarily need meat, right? So the the Trump administration issued an executive order in uh, I want to say April, saying that um, slaughterhouses were necessary. Uh, were essential businesses. And of course, you can live without eating meat. So that's just false, right? But food of some type is mm-hmm. essential. Vegetables, uh, I would say. Do you remember the story in the news yesterday about <laughs> right. the person that stuck it to the vegans by only eating meat for a month or so? And, and then he got scurvy. Got scurvy, yeah. <laughs> right? so. Yeah. So, uh, but I think, you know, education clearly isn't essential in that sense, that it's required that we would die without it. So I think that another way of understanding it what it is to be essential is that there are these critical human values that a certain service promotes and that though we may not die without them, they're so important to us that when we're doing a balancing act, we want to preserve them. Right, right, right. So well, that leads to some philosophical reflection on what the value of an education is. Mm-hmm. So there's this, sort of this platonic ideal that education uh, is only for a select few the, those that love the truth above all else, the guardians, the philosopher king types. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but we've come to have, you know, uh, motivated strongly by the work of folks like John Dewey, uh, this more democratic idea of what education is and the role that it plays in society. So uh, it's a social enterprise that involves uh, conversation and discussion to build on previous knowledge, right? And then as a result, we get innovation, we get uh, stronger institutions, a more thriving democracy, because the citizenry can arrive at these uh, public viewpoints that are based on knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is this critical role that education plays. And I think those values are important to promote. Uh, But one of the things that we're seeing right now in contemporary culture is parents getting really angry with teachers. And this is frustrating uh, for a variety of reasons. And we'll come back to the details a little bit more in a second. But 
one of my thoughts in response to seeing some of this anger is that it seems like there's a lot of parents think that it's just a foregone conclusion that children are just, you know, have access to education. And this, mm-hmm. it just hasn't been true for very long, right? I mean, this whole public school system that we have now is, is a very newcomer. Yeah, people um, very quickly sort of get used to things as they are, right? Mm-hmm. So we have K through 12 educations paid for mm-hmm. um, with you know, property taxes and in the United States, it's, it's ubiquitous. Um, but we don't pay for college, right? Um, we supplement it, but it's not covered. So that seems foreign to people. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first in college, I went to a, a community college and there, there was no tuition. There was a $4 a month health fee that, that covered, you know, Band-Aids if you had to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And people thought, well, yeah, that's what you get. You get K through 12, and then you get your first two years of college if you go to a community college, or you go to a state school, you pay more. In countries where college is provided, people think, well, of course you get K through, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. senior in college. Right. Um, it's, it's funny, we just have no institutional memory as, as a group whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, this may be because we don't have an adequate historical education. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a good long period of time across most cultures, education was viewed as inappropriate for girls and women. Mm-hmm. And that's still true in some cultures now. Right, right. Um, so uh, different philosophers like Mal Branch and, and others through time thought of women as too excitable, right? Mm-hmm. That, 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 and that became like a dominant view that... If you educate a woman, it's going to give her a dangerous imagination or something like that. Um, or it will overwhelm her. In the 1600s, there was a um, famous prodigy, child prodigy, Anna Maria Van Sherman, who was allowed to take classes at the University of Utrecht only on the condition that she take those classes from behind a partition. Not to prevent COVID droplets or something, but instead right. to uh, make to to so that she wouldn't distract the male students. Right? Mm-hmm. So so a prodigy, a super genius female, might be appropriate to educate for a lark, but women as a as a as a group, not so much. Right. So you'll recall the case that was in the news, um, you know, just a few years back, where the the woman went to campus at BYU and she was in violation of the dress code because her skirt was above her knee. Um, that said, she wore boots that came almost up to her knee and had leggings on under the, mm-hmm. the skirt and boots. And then it was you know, Valentine's Day thing. A guy passed her a note and got away really quick. She didn't see who it was. Um, and she thought it was a love letter and she opens it up. And it was the same story. It's like, you know, the way you're dressed is distracting other students, mm-hmm. men and women. Mm-hmm. Please respect the honor code. Right? <laughs> it's this kind of weird shaming thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Still happens to this day, I guess. Yeah, it's it's not a phenomenon that's that's completely gone. <laughs> there were other segments of society, of course, for whom education wasn't viewed as appropriate, and that it kind of uh, covered both sides of the socioeconomic scale. So, um, certain people that had low status for whatever reason, whether it was because of how people viewed their race or their you know socioeconomic status or whatever. Um, group membership of various types didn't have access to education. But then on the other side, you've got very wealthy people for whom education wasn't viewed as appropriate. That 
they could live more genteel lives because they were rich and education was for people who had to learn how to do skills, right? There's a, we, recently we um, binge watched The Crown. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later in the liking section, but let me just say that was the thing that I enjoyed the most this summer, right? Mm -hmm. of, of all the shows that we were watching and the movies that we were watching. I can't wait for the next season, which is coming out in November. So, yeah. And yeah. there's there's this plot storyline where she's realizing that she didn't get a formal education. So, you know, she she was educated by a provost directly, mm -hmm. but um, the education consisted of, okay, at a dinner party, which per, to, you know, to which person on which side of you is it appropriate to turn at which periods of the meal, right? Just these like, mm -hmm etiquette silly etiquette rules and things like that and she's like oh my goodness now i have to make decisions as a monarch or at least i have to consult and participate in these these decisions and i don't know anything about anything mm -hmm. right? and and complicating that is you know she's new in this position and finds out that she's meeting on a regular basis with winston churchill yeah. right? one of the most educated people in the country and somebody that not only knows about historical events, is an actual historical figure. Yeah. It was very intimidating, right? right. Um, but to, to the um, Queen's credit, she got tutors in and got herself educated. And, and so now, in our contemporary society, education has become democratized, but and there are still issues, of course, especially with access to higher education and the costs associated with that. Um, but it's, it's, it's something we should be grateful for, but not something that was a foregone conclusion. Right, right. So all over social media and in the comments threads to news stories and things, you're seeing these complaints about teachers and they take a number of different forms, but all of them are frustrating. Yeah, they're so, driving me up the wall. Every single <laughs> instance of it. So you get complaints that uh, teachers either should take on the risks or they should move on to other jobs. Mm -hmm. which seems pretty callous and unempathetic <laughs> and unsympathetic. Uh, and then you get these complaints that, well, if so it, in our son's school, um, he's going to school two days a week and doing a, a online education three days a week. Mm -hmm. And some of the parents are furious about this. And I'll just say as an aside, say, you know, it is really hard for some of them. Some of them are single parents or working parents that don't have other legitimate child care options. And so. Right, right. Especially during the pandemic mm -hmm. where. You might take the kids down the street, but there are huge safety issues. Right, and... right. So, uh, so, so there's something to be sympathetic about there. But then there are others who just seem to be frustrated. They think that they're, they're, you know, they're paying taxes so that their kids can go to school and that they're getting ripped off. And, and a lot of them are calling for teachers who are already paid poorly mm -hmm. to be paid less because they're doing less work. Right. And it, it's a weird thing. Um, people seem to think the less time you are in a particular place, the less you must be working. Mm -hmm. So I remember this debate, you know, going on years ago about um, academics that just taught one class at a time. Mm -hmm. And people would say they're only working three hours a week. Right. And the ones that managed to teach for three hours a week are producing book after book after book and giving and doing their, service to right, giving their universe. research to the right, you know to the world essentially for free you know um and you, and you wouldn't say this about other professions you wouldn't say oh gosh this lawyer was only in court you know two hours last week mm -hmm. he must not have been doing anything or she must not have they're doing their research right there's mm. there's work that happens outside 
Um, and it seems particularly pronounced here, right? Where people think, well, this teacher's in the classroom half the time. They must not be doing anything. And it's a lot harder to teach the same material in two different ways than it is to teach it in one. And further exacerbating that, I think, is, you know, at least at our son's school, um, they've split the classes in two. So the teachers are in the classroom the same amount of time, at least, you know, four of the five days out of the week, mm -hmm. and managing to provide enough online material. So they're doing well more than twice to, the work. To keep the kids busy the other the other half of the class, right, the other two days. And so it's, it's, you know, it's double the work. I can speak to that, too. I mean, we've been working on uh, putting classes online and getting things ready to be really high-quality classes. And, it, you know, it's basically taken up my whole summer. Yeah, yeah. Same. And, and it's not like your classes are all prepped for the fall. There's, they're in good place to move forward. To get started. With yeah. plenty of work to do throughout. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I still have almost a whole fall's worth of lectures recorded because I was changing my format to the structure of my courses and all the technological support and stuff in advance of the semester. So I think mean, it's worth talking about what the role of an educator is and, and how we think about educators and how we might our, improve our understanding as a culture of what educators are doing or should be doing. Mm -hmm. And as specifically sort of what constitutes a very good educator. So, um, you know, I, I think throughout my life in pop culture, there have been really nice models for what it is for someone to be a good teacher, um, a good educator. Although sometimes they're, they're incomplete. So I remember when, when I was you know, very young, one of my favorite shows was Room 222, right? Now, some of you will remember that. There was this guy he taught in Room 222. His name was Mr. Dixon. And he was the, the greatest teacher, right? But he was the greatest teacher because he really cared about his students. Um, you know, it seemed like each week he was involved in some student's life and solving a personal problem at home, helping them, you know, to, to be able to perform well in the classroom. And this show was, you know, a, you know, an ABC sitcom, um, you know, clearly sort of derivative of um, um, To Serve With Love, right? But, um, you know, more lighthearted than that. Um, and so that's great. It, it's a nice message, right? It, it paints teachers in a good light and says, teachers can be very caring, you know, mm -hmm. and, and but, the, but the downside of that is, or the worry that I have about it is, you're thought to be a great teacher if you're Mr. Dixon. If you're one of these teachers that goes the extra mile um, on a very personal level, right? And so um, I think if, if you're Mr. Dixon, you probably are a great teacher. But that's not the only way one can be a very great teacher. So, you know, as time goes on, we, we start to get more of these models um, and they become more sophisticated. So I, I can't believe I'm actually putting a, a comment about um, Welcome Back Cotter um, in a sentence with more sophisticated, but <laughs> just these things are all relative. But, you know, later in the 70s, you have shows like Welcome Back Cotter. So Mr. Cotter goes back to his old school and there's this class of the remedial students called the Sweat Hogs, and he's a former Sweat Hog. So he's not just there getting involved in their personal lives, but rather he's delivering this, again, slightly more sophisticated message, which is, hey, you can be whatever you want. Don't let them label you. Don't let them tell you. Um, great teacher, right? He's in inspiring the students. Uh, but again, other things 
can count as being great um, regarding you know, teaching. Um, same thing with shows around the same time, like the White Knight, right? It's the basketball coach that inspires um, all the kids and they've got a lot of problems and it gets involved and helps them. Um, but perhaps part of what it is to be a great teacher is to be great at teaching, to mm -hmm. convey information, especially in trying times like these, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, we're, we're in a pandemic. People are learning, you know, hybrid, synchronous, asynchronous, virtual, face-to-face, -face, you know, traditional methods. Um, there's, there's a lot of balls in the air and there's a lot of things to do and a lot of things that can go wrong if you don't put a lot of thought into it, right? So um, I, I would hate to discount anybody that's not a, um, you know, a Mr. Dixon or a, a Gabe Cotter um, from, you know, the category of great teachers. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, not to pat myself on the back too much, but I think my students think I'm a great teacher um, and I don't give a crap about their personal lives. They, you know, they, they love it. It's, it's, they, they consider me to be this, this kind of uncaring nihilist. Oh, um, no. But, Nonsense. Yeah, you know, they could all rot for all I care. No. But I do care that they learn, and I, and I go out of my way to make sure that Not they learn. Not true at all. all yeah. right, so some other models. Well, I, I wanted to say first about what you were saying. Um, so you, you kind of suggested that um, the, the, these kinds of models, like the room 222, mm -hmm. that that model is too uh, simplistic or, or too um, one-sided or something. Yeah. It p paints a, pr a caricature picture. But um, let me just make it clear. I do appreciate it. It's a nice, you know, that, that was a, a thoughtful show that said, sure. hey, teachers can be great. Yeah, and caring is an important part of yeah. being a teacher. But so another, what the point I was going to make is... Um, I think it can be very tempting to, uh, as, as you've, you've seen these models in pop culture of really caring teachers who get involved in their students' personal lives and things, and, and there's a tendency to want to be that. But I think, you know, like I get, get students in my office who are telling me about their problems and, and who are, uh, and, and their problems are, are pretty broad ranging, right? But I think it's really important to not take all of those on recognizing that you're not an expert in those things, right? Mm -hmm. So there are other, you know, at least on our university campus, there are all sorts of sorts of resources that we can refer students to instead of trying to be their counselor and to try to be uh, any of a number of things to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so these models that say, oh, you should get deeply involved with a student's personal life, maybe ask teachers to take on too many roles so overburdening the teacher, but also sometimes put the students uh, at a disadvantage because they're not getting the the services they need from actual professionals in those fields. Right, right. And it's very easy for the students to rely on us because we do sort of, you know, have a kind of relationship with them that develops over time, especially as you get to know them, where you've joked around a little bit and you're this authority figure that they know that they're comfortable being with. So it's easy to say, hey, I need help with this and help with that. But perhaps the best help is, here's the resource you need. Yeah. You know. And you know, that I've heard that social workers have similar problems because you do come to really care deeply about your students and, and social workers come to care deeply about the people that they're working with. Um, Some but you, you just can't be all things and you got to try not to be. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and then there's this model on the other side, which is, I've, I've encountered some professors like this in my life. It's like the paper chase 
uh, style professor who mm. basically they're going to be harsh, they're going to be critical, and they're going to motivate students to transcend and become better versions of themselves because they've they've improved through adversity. Yeah, this and, is my least favorite model of a right. teacher. Right, and this this in the paper chase the the instructor right it was on John Houseman. Um, I think it was either in the movie or the TV show, and maybe both, right? He employed the Socratic method, but only if Socrates were there to ask really insulting and demeaning <laughs> right. questions, right? <laughs> Every question is designed to make people feel stupid, such that they don't, you know, ever attempt to answer one again unless they're forced to, and then they're prepared. And then afterwards you go, thank you for making me so much better. Right? Uh, and it's, you know, it's, that's like the, that's a perversion of the Socratic method. And I think the Socratic method is really good and ties in with this idea, this question we started with about what makes for a good educator is, I mean, I, I had, a, my textbook in intro philosophy was called, was The Great Conversation. And I really liked oh, yeah, that yeah. title for a philosophy textbook, but maybe just for education in general that you learn through interaction. I think that education is a social activity. And that's not to say that you can't get a lot. You know, this summer I've been trying to teach myself Latin. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've, I'm using a great courses. And there's something great about that because um, you can rewind it and things like that. And, and if you missed something, uh, you can pick it back up. But you're not getting this interaction. Uh, you're not getting a professional that's had experience kind of recognizing when material isn't, clicking and understanding common mistakes and pointing right, you in the right, right. directions, right? Um, yeah. But it's, it's experienced educators that do that, and we should have a lot of respect for what they do. And we should recognize that the role of teacher is distinct from the role of childcare provider. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, I want to elaborate on that, but before we do, I just want to say this. We should share with our listeners that I'm doing much better with the Latin this summer than you are. Um, but I've been learning Pig Latin, which doesn't require a good teacher. But, um, much easier. I think you've mastered it. S <laughs> J I A F. Hey. Yeah. So I mean, so chair, uh, child care is is a really important uh, role too. Uh, it's essential work as well, in in the sense we've been describing, in both senses maybe. Um, but it's it's we shouldn't confuse it with the role of a teacher and i think that uh, many of these people that are making these complaints are just laying bare that they're can they're they're conflating the role of teacher with child giver and child care provider and if if that's what they're doing we should be open about that and and then maybe pay teachers for doing two jobs yeah right pay them pay them what it's worth i thought some of our listeners might be interested in the delivery methods that are being offered this semester and kind of the pros and cons from a value perspective and i don't mean financial value i mean philosophical value like the the extent to which they meet the needs they, they satisfy those values that we talked about mm -hmm. that education is about so because if you're even one semester out of college what's going on in on college campuses might be pretty foreign to you yeah this, you'd, this you'd fall be shocked to hear it um i mean there was a time in march where this wasn't really on the horizon uh -huh. um, and then, a, you know, a couple of weeks later, it was our reality. And then if you had told me, you know, March 3rd, by the way, here's how teaching is going to be, I would have been dumbfounded. Yeah, I mean, we had a vacation scheduled in May that when we got out of school, when we were working from home in, in March, we were thinking the May vacation might still happen. I mean, we, the, the, the magnitude of this was not on our radar. Yeah, um, right. I mean, it started to become clear 
a little later, oh, this is not only is this going to be still going on in the fall, it's still going to be going on in the spring and maybe even Yeah, past that. and now it's apparent that it's going to go into the 2040s or 50s. No, please. At the rate we're going. Bite your tongue. Out. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so, so I thought we'd just talk about the delivery methods. So some people are still going to be face-to-face. And, mm-hmm. and this is, we're just speaking college campuses here. Yeah. Because this is what we know the, the best. But so in those face-to-face spaces, um, they're just considerably more, or excuse me, considerably fewer students, mm-hmm. right? So you'll take a class that was built for, you know, a classroom that might have, be built for 50 students and you might have 15 or something like that. Right, with the mandated social distancing mm-hmm. and keeping people six feet apart. Everybody's, right. So I, for example, I'm uh, teaching our first year experience type course in, in a couple of days here. And we're going to be in a big, there's 30 of us in a big lecture hall. Mm-hmm. Right? And just spaced apart. Spaced out. Yeah, I learned something interesting about our setup. And this might just apply to our building. But they put um, these sort of plexiglass things in that the teacher can stand behind oh. when they teach. And I, I knew about that at the start of the summer, right? And so then you're talking, but you're not putting anything out there. Um, but they're in the front of the room in the middle. And then all the, um, you know, computer hardware and mm-hmm. visualizers and thing, things like that are off to the side, and they're not in front of that. Yeah. So if you're someone like me who stands in the corner because you want to hit the computer and have slides come up and, mm-hmm. and whatnot, um, you yeah. have to make adjustments. Yep. Which, you know, I'm guessing it's just using a clicker. but It makes group work really difficult because you can't actually get the students together. So if you're going to have discussions, they're going to be whole class discussions, which isn't that bad. Yeah. But then, of course, there are the risks involved because students, you know, I think that the plans that have been laid out by universities, or at least our universities, are good ones if you get 100% compliance mm-hmm. or pretty darn good compliance. Something close to it. Yeah. I don't know what to expect. I don't know to what degree we're going to get compliance. The kids um, are cray. <laughs> and not, not just the students, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some adults are taking this more seriously than others. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's, it's a community effort, and you have to have everybody um, doing their part. Yeah. Um, but I, I like that they've mandated, um, you know, a number of protocols, and hopefully that will facilitate a higher percentage of people following them. Yeah. So then there's the web broadcast, that's what we're calling it, um, mm-hmm. model, which is just teaching in real time um, via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't... So we mentioned that there are some struggles with the face-to-face, with group work and with... Uh, you know, being able to do the things that you can do in a classroom under regular circumstances, I think you can do all of those things uh, via Zoom. So to me, there's very little benefit. If I mean, maybe if I'm being completely honest, I think given the risks, there's no real benefit to holding face-to-face courses instead of doing it via Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, right. My initial take was there's certain things you can do in a classroom that you can't do in Zoom, um, you know, writing on the board and things like that as you're thinking of things. But it turns out there's whiteboards and visualizers and adapters and and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so just to sort of complete your thought about doing some of the things better, right? Um, Putting people in breakout rooms to have their smaller group discussions works. Whereas in the classroom, you can't move them anywhere. You can't put them together. They have to stay six feet in all directions apart. I mean, one disadvantage of Zoom, although I don't know that this is a, a disadvantage that you don't also face in the classroom, is that some students um, are going to have 
they're, they're not, it might reduce participation, right? Because they're gonna have black screens and they may, some of them, if you don't require screens to be on and there are reasons not to require screens to be on. Yeah, right. Um, they're gonna have black screens. They may or may not be in the room. They might just sign in, have their black screen and mm -hmm. go play video games. Right, so I've got things built into uh, my classes where you know they have to contribute mm -hmm. discussion questions and, and bring part of the content. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to be shy about calling on students. Right. So it could be very embarrassing if they turn out not to be there. I'm talking to the screen and the screen's not responding. And... But I actually find, you know, we've done a lot of Zooming over the course of the summer. And I find it to be quite intimate. I mean, you're in a way that can facilitate this kind of teacher-student care relationship, you know? So, I mean, you're, you're in my living room, right? And, and mm -hmm. uh, your face is right in my face. And I'm, you know, I have to relate to you. I'm relating to you just as well as a person, I think, via Zoom as I would if you came to my office hours. Right. Um, right. And, and it, it, it just kind of highlights the fact that we're all in a trying time together and it's, it's kind of a bonding thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is, you've said this lots of times that, you know, when we look back on this and we have all these artifacts, right? Um, recorded Zoom lectures, masks, <laughs> yeah. shields, right? Yeah. Plague masks and whatnot. Yeah. It's, it'll be this thing that we shared. And we'll tell our grandkids about it, and our hen will tell his kids, and then we'll just be like, "What?" It's like when my grandparents told me about the depression, right? It was, it was kind of interesting, but I didn't feel, still don't, any of the force of it. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. as somebody who lived through it, my grandfather had, you know, four or five jobs, none of them paid very much, and they didn't mm -hmm. always provide work, you know. So, yeah. So then there's the uh, the hybrid face-to-face -face model. This one is the strangest, and this is the one that I um, maybe like participating in the least, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, uh, I've, I've not actually done it, but I practiced it, right? So um, you go into your classroom and you create two groups, okay? Um, and they're gonna alternate days in which they show up face-to-face. -face. So this is, has a Zoom element and it has a face-to-face -face class element. So uh, let's say on a Monday, half of your class will be present in the classroom um, the other class will be zooming in and you're wearing a mask and you're maybe, like you said, trying to stand behind the plexiglass while also operating the equipment, operating the equipment right? And, and you're having to monitor um, the Zoom chat and all that. It's just a lot. It's a lot to remember it all at once. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky in real time. And so just quickly, uh, the Zoom chat, if you haven't experienced it, there's like a, a, ch uh, a space where participants can write their questions. And so you want to make sure that you're addressing that, but you're also addressing, you're dealing with the students in the room. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. two different groups of students in two very different modalities. And they don't just do that, right? So you're keeping an eye on this thing that's just rolling along with comment after comment. And a lot of times they're just interacting with, with one another, right? Yeah. So, oh, you know, Bob, I like your, your poster back there. Is, you know, is that Jimi Hendrix? And, uh -huh. you know, no, it's, you know, Studs Turkle or something. Yeah. And they're just blathering but you've, you got to make sure you get the questions out of there so it is a, a real real-time juggling act and then sometimes people are like raising their hands rather than participating in the chat they're raising their hands on zoom mm -hmm. and, and whether that's clicking the raise hand button or actually literally raising their physical hand mm -hmm. and then to try to monitor what's going on i mean i'm i'm glad that i have like tas because yeah. I can put them in charge of monitoring the chat, but that's, I mean, most classes don't have TAs. So. Yeah, no, you, you people at your research institutions <laughs> with your fancy TAs. 
Um, yeah, and then I've got this sort of combo model that we call virtual hybrid. Um, so I'm having the students zoom in about half the time, maybe slightly more, and we're discussing, but what we're discussing is the course readings and lectures that I record and put up earlier in the week, right? So I'm there's stuff that I'm just giving them to view and then mm -hmm. time to discuss it. Um, kind of best of both worlds, asynchronous and synchronous. Yeah, yeah. It's um, With virtual hybrid at our school, they said it's got to be 20% asynchronous at least. Um, and, you know, I think they don't want you just putting up one or two things over the semester, giving the kids a lot of time off, and then having them meet half the time. So I'm giving them you know, about as much content as I would in a regular class recorded and having about as much discussion as I would hmm. in a regular class, but we're having the discussion in real time. That's the, the synchronous component. So just in case um, listeners aren't familiar, synchronous is like happening in real time, while asynchronous classes are ones that you can kind of tune into whenever. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm teaching, for my regular course load this semester, I'm teaching two asynchronous and one synchronous. So that's two kind of do whenever throughout the week and another one where we actually have meeting times and we meet on zoom um so that's the last delivery method is the asynchronous where um you're putting material up the students can access it access it whenever in a given time frame mm -hmm. um, so for that like i've recorded my lectures and then i think the key there so one of the questions i mean the main philosophical question i think about all this is whether all of these methods really achieve the aims of education. And we were talking before about um, education, this dewey kind of education as a social endeavor that improves everyone involved and contributes to functioning democracies. And I, I think it's important that education is a conversation, as we mentioned. And so I think the asynchronous model poses the biggest challenge to that. But then there's these, you know, you can have lively discussion boards so that there there is this conversation, but it's just happening on text rather than um, in rather than rather than um, via conversation. Yeah, right. It, yeah, vocal conversation. Right. So the you know the maybe oversimplified oversimplified response to what you're saying is all of these can be equally effective if you do all the things necessary and avail yourself to all the resources, um, but they all do pose different challenges, right? So you know with with the model that I'm using. Um, for most of my classes that I like quite a bit, um, it's great that you know, the students get the whole lecture and then we discuss it. But there's a little bit of a trade-off there, right? Um, the, the student can't stop in the moment when they're thinking about what I'm saying and hearing it and, and ask the question that they have right then mm -hmm. before we go on, mm -hmm. right? Get clarification mm -hmm. on point A before moving past that. They just have to write them all down and wait. And it's, mm -hmm. So it's not the same thing. But it, at the same time, it's nice they, they get this whole tidy package. So in the spring, I was, um, you know, for the last five weeks of the semester, fully asynchronous. And the, the students all did very well on their exams, right? Because they just, they had a recording of what I was saying that they could work from. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, sufficiently put things in their own words that it wasn't just regurgitating. Um, so it's good, but it's also good to have the kind of real-time discussions that allow you to go a little little deeper into the material. Yeah, I'm finding that with the Latin course that I'm taking is there are some of these like uh, fundamental points that are maybe so basic that I should have known them already, but 
but if I could just ask this basic question, then I could fit all the other pieces together. Uh, but I can't, because uh, it's not real time. Am say ithway ein main. Same with mine in my pig Latin course. <laughs> okay, so let's let's tie this back into yeah what we were discussing just a moment ago, um, and sort of bring out some of the the philosophical aspects of it. So yeah, at one point, um, yeah, we were venting a little bit about people complaining about what teachers do. Um, but, you know, if this discussion of the different modes of presentation shows us anything, um, it's that what teachers do is, you know, considerably more complicated than what you might have thought under these circumstances, right? So, um, you know, take me as somebody who gives lectures. I was responsible previously for, um, you know, mastering the material and then figuring out what's the best way or what are the best ways to present that material to the students. Um, and I still have that same responsibility. But on top of that, I now further have to think about what's the best, you know, way to present the material, you know, in terms of the technology, face-to-face, -face, virtual hybrid, you know, synchronous, asynchronous, and all this. Um, and I've chosen for my classes this semester to do it different ways for different classes, uh, based on whether it's lower division, upper division, and so forth. So I've had to get on top of all sorts of um, technological stuff, right? Technology that I didn't have to use before. And I've been trained um, in online teaching for years, but this is very different, right? Um, that's just a sort of a Canvas format kind of thing. So um, the philosophical payoff of this is, you know, those of you who are sort of railing about teachers doing less so they should make less, give back parts of their salaries, they should fund people's property taxes. I've been hearing this and stuff. You know, just take the you know, basic lesson from the philosopher W.K. Clifford, right? Who argued um, that one ought never, right? That it's actually morally wrong um, to form beliefs on the basis of insufficient evidence, right? And this is maybe a little bit controversial, um, but only, only at the fringes of this, right? That, you know, if you're out there you know, with a call to action, teachers should take a cut and pay, and they're getting away with murder, and, and you're, you know, denigrating an entire class of people um, on the assumption that, oh, you see them in the classroom less, they must be working less. It's a great example of just how wrong that could be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the old expression when, you know, when you assume, I'm going to paraphrase, um, you make idiots of both of us or something like that. I don't think that's how that goes. <laughs> that's, it's close enough. Yeah, I, I, I don't pretend to assume to know that expression. I, I, uh, I mean, even just recorded lectures, you know, um, you're, you're using Canvas to interact with your students via discussion boards and all that kind of thing, trying to keep an active and um, vibrant classroom atmosphere. But even the recording of the lectures itself, like uh, I'm thinking about how what I want my presentation to look and sound like, mm -hmm. and that often will involve recording the same, you know, 20 minute segment over and over again because whoops, I slipped up on this or I I didn't do this correctly, and I write all mine out in advance so that it, I'm making the points that I want to make and all that. And yeah, and, same, same. I mean, if if I have an opportunity to get it right, I will. You know. Yeah. Like being a musician, you're out playing live. You you know you practice your hardest and you hope it comes out really good. But when mm -hmm. you're in the studio, you know you do it 97 times right. if that's what it takes to get and it right. And that's what's happening for sure. Yeah. yeah. So each lecture gets delivered multiple times mm -hmm. 
per single presentation. And then there's technological difficulties. So I like the, um, I, what I've been doing this semester is just recording on Zoom, and I'm really comfortable with that software. But when I was using Kaltura in in the in the spring, it was um, I my computer was on its way out, and uh, I've got a new one now. But um, it would uh, crash my computer. Kaltura would crash my computer. Yeah, yeah. Or something was happening every time I used Kaltura, and so uh, I would get. Partial, part of the way through the lecture and the technology would die where my computer would crash and then I have to do it again. So yeah, right. it's really time consuming. Right. And nothing like that happens in, in the classroom and, you know, right. unless you lose your voice for a minute or mm -hmm. something. Right? You, you can just adjust. Right. Yeah. Have a glass of water, put them in groups and it's all fine. One way of addressing the delivery um, problem, the educational delivery problem that some countries are pursuing is piping educational programming into students uh, via the television. Um, and so, and this is a solution that's being proposed for students that don't have access to the internet too. Mm -hmm. um, so they, it might be a lot easier to get students to a place where you can broadcast via cable or whatever than it is to, yeah. to broadcast on the internet. Before you go on, let me just say that, you know, when I was young, I would have loved that because my whole life was was television. <laughs> Do you think they could just send it to the kids via Instagram or, or TikTok? <laughs> then they'll really watch it. Yeah, I mean, I think that so there's something really good about this, and that is that you can that is public safety, public health and safety. So, it, uh, using this model, I think substantially fewer adults have to be in the room. Mm -hmm. And the real concern, I mean, because kids don't tend to get as sick with COVID, the real danger is to the adults. Yeah. Um, they do get sick, and so th there is that problem, but um, it, it's, it's less common than it is with adults, as everybody knows by now. So um, so that's a, good, that's a good method for that reason, and maybe that should, you know, we should work with what we can get um, until we're out of an emergency situation. But obviously there are some bad features and that you don't have that interaction, you don't have that care, you don't have that intimacy and I, I couldn't help but be reminded of Fahrenheit 451, mm -hmm. when the main character's wife is like, um, all of her friends, I'm using air quotes here, but you can't see me, mm -hmm. um, are uh, characters on a television show. And her, they bought these screens to be the walls of her house. And she just has these, and, and the characters are broadcast uh, onto the screens and she interacts with them right mm -hmm. and they've bought this special chip uh, that allows the characters to call her by name and so on and oh, wow. you know you just you feel like uh, I, I was i was reminded of that because of that lack of intimacy it's kind mm -hmm. of like a a feigned intimacy um you're trying to give off a certain impression but it's not real yeah uh, which i think is i think that that care is a critical part of education maybe they could pipe in some bullies to give it an authentic no. feel right? <laughs> bullies to the degree that they were before it. yeah no, it's, it's not my generation you know <laughs> there ought to be some shamers out there right so uh so finally i thought we could talk about um the future of education i've seen a lot of people prognosticating on social media and in op-eds in major newspapers and i saw an actual plan from google um to posted today uh that 
that there's going to be this radical shift in what education is as a result of the pandemic and that it's going to become um, corporatized, which, oh, yuck, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So here's here's a plan I read from Google that they're going to offer these courses um, as job training, right? And they're going to be $49.99 a month, and you'll just keep paying the $49.99 until you complete the course. And then you get this certificate, and that the Google at least is going to consider that an equivalent to a degree. And then they they might be willing to hire you for certain positions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certain high paying positions. Um, and so that, so that the corporate realm will then get in the business of education. And I just, I think that's quite frightening because it, it, per, it um, categorizes, characterizes, higher ed as if it's about as if it's nothing about nothing more than job training it's not about enriching one's life and creating well-rounded individuals and all this right and talk about reinforcing the consumer model right Right. well as long as you're using our thing you keep paying for your education the second you're not you don't right it's not that a class is worth this kind of investment it's access to the class is worth this kind of investment per month yeah right um and it's it's deeply concerning during a time when critical thinking skills are so important. And it's not just the pandemic, but it's also climate change and things like this that, you know, it's it's critical that people aren't just concerned with how much money they're going to make, but how they're going to prepare themselves to respond to the humanity's most significant problems. Mm-hmm. And not to downplay the money, right? I mean, there's all these articles that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years um, about, you know, how people with philosophical skills do in their careers, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if you're just training for a particular job at Google and you're getting, you know, the equivalent of a business degree and maybe you get that job and maybe you don't, and you go out in the world and, and you might even do fine with it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a trained philosopher, 10 years down the road, statistically speaking, you will be making more mm-hmm. than the average business person. Yeah, the idea that uh, philosophers just end up as baristas is nonsense. Yeah, right? yeah. Employers are looking for good critical thinking skills. Yeah, exactly. Um, one final issue sort of related to the, the other one. Um, when we went um, virtual in the spring, um, we instantly, you know, in our, our college council meetings, started having discussions about, you know, how the legislature is going to perceive this, right? The, the worry is they say, oh, well, gosh, you know, people do fine teaching online. We can save a fortune on brick and mortar buildings. If you're teaching online, you're not constrained by the classroom. So, you know, you can have double the number of students in each class for less money. And, um, you know, we may end up phasing ourselves out. Um, and that's a worry. And I think that would be a bad thing. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, we the thought is, you know, the face-to-face is better, but instructors, you know, that I know, at least, um, you know, college-level academics, have all been working very hard to make it the case that there isn't this great drop-off. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been some really nice, surprising things. So we find ourselves in a tough position, right? If I'm thinking about, you know, the long-term future of my line at Weber State University, um, I have incentive not to do as well doing this, mm-hmm. um, teaching online as I do, or teaching virtually as I do face-to-face, or they may just replace two of us with one and double the number of, of students that we teach and so forth. Um, 
And I think to, you know, um, my colleagues credit, every single one of us has ignored that, 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 you know, the fact that it's maybe not in our best interest to make these courses great. We're, we're doing everything we can mm -hmm. to give the absolute best product, despite the fact that some legislature, legislators going to down the road say, well, why can't all the courses just be like that? Why are mm -hmm. we building another social science building? Um, so it's, it's interesting. We're going to have to make the case later that there's a wedge between this kind of instruction and traditional instruction, or maybe that the best model is a combination of each. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that, that works to our favor is students seem to prefer um, the face-to-face. -face. Overwhelmingly, um, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it'll, it'll be nice to drive that wedge down the road. Um, I, I'm proud of my colleagues mm -hmm. for not thinking of it in those terms. And, yeah. um, you know... Um, Social media has been great. You know, normally you learn about um, you know pedagogical techniques, um, you know, from your colleagues at these you know learning forums, and you read articles. Um, you learn about the technology from the IT guy. But since the pandemic happened, there've been a number of pages on social media about you know pandemic pedagogy, mm -hmm. um, and you know the the my cohort has been sharing ideas and strategies and mm -hmm. we're all sort of lifting one another up to produce the best possible products right people saying i tried this and it worked great for this but didn't work for that and yeah. you're just getting so much good information out there um so back to what we were saying earlier teachers need raises now <laughs> especially me I, I, <laughs> I need to buy another ukulele What do we what are we liking this week, or should I say, what are we liking this summer? <laughs> Since it, we're we're just coming back and it's been a while. Uh, well, early in the summer we watched Alias Grace, which is a Margaret Atwood adaptation. Yeah, yeah, um, and that that was great. Um, you'd read it before. Mm, I've not it. I've not read it, but we're both big Margaret Atwood fans. It's maybe my favorite of hers actually. Yeah, wonderful story and and always like with um Margaret Atwood stuff just loaded with good philosophical content. Yeah. So much to think about. Um yeah, and and so there's a long list. Maybe we can do this quickly, you know, with um, movies and stuff. Um we didn't see anything noteworthy all summer. We haven't been to the cinema. Um we've watched a number of um you know, B-level horror films. <laughs> um, none of them are memorable. They all blur together. And we always enjoy them like we always yeah. do. Um, but we ended up binge-watching a number of shows. Um, and maybe I just want to sort of hit on the highlights. So for me, um, I thought that the best thing of the summer was The Crown. We, I mentioned this earlier. Mm, but, we loved um, it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we're, we're both fans of history and British history. I didn't really think of this as kind of a British history thing going into it because it's so recent but but it, it really is i mean it's the history of the last you know 100 years or 70 years yeah well, almost 100 right, right. farther yeah. back because it predates elizabeth and she's 90 taking something. over yeah right <laughs> um and it yeah and it's just it's sort of been extremely interesting um there, there's some good kind of political philosophy stuff going on there um you see her as a kind of ruler and She's got a set of principles and she adheres to them. And just as the same thing happened in our country, you can really watch the, um, the 
political landscape changing around her. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't, right? So this is somebody who, you know, I would describe as sort of fairly conservative. But as times go on, right, when the Labor Party comes into power for the first time with her, she's a little nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the conservatives keep moving farther to the right, and mm-hmm. she ends up agreeing with them less and less. And it's, it's a wonderful sort of juxtaposition, you know, and especially in the context of what's the kind of legitimate role of government, especially a monarch that doesn't have any real power, at least not legislative, um, but still has to rule, right, as sovereign. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, other things, um, Lovecraft Country just started. Um, we're enjoying that. Um, back to back, we watched um, Penny Dreadful City of Angels and Perry Mason, which mm-hmm. um, have striking similarities because they both feature a, a take on this real life figure. Um, there's kind of a radio televangelist. Yeah, crazy coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, it looks like based on a, a real character. Um, Ricky Gervais's Afterlife um, was great for philosophical reflection. Um, Hollywood was a, a lot of fun. That was another show we binge watched. Um, but maybe just to tie all this up, I'm, I'm loving all these shows and always do. I'm dying to get back in a movie theater. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it when they open. I'm waiting till the pandemic's over. Or mm-hmm. We're all vaccinated, but. I do miss the sort of big screen cinema. Absolutely. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think they'reforifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.